You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good morning. My name is Amy Rogers, and my husband John and I serve as gospel community leaders. Today I'm going to be reading Genesis 32, 22 through 32. Please open your Bibles with me. If you don't have one, there should be one in the seat in front of you. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Amy. Church family, good to see you this morning. Hope you're doing well. Furman, so glad you're with us here. Uh, this year's a little different. Last year, we brought Furman's in and Dave preached here and then and Gloria did a little Q&A at the end. This year, it's just more of a, a hang trip, just getting to do some relational reprieve and come in and receive. So we're glad you're with us here in church family. It's good to be back. Those that I haven't met, my name is Shay Sumlin, one of the pastors here, and just got back from a couple weeks leading a Northway trip uh, to Israel. And yes, in case you're wondering, it is as hot in Israel as it is in Dallas, Texas, and has been. The only difference is we weren't hanging out at North Park Mall or the Galleria most of the day. We were hiking around the desert, and I am... Side report, I'm the only one out of 54 that made it back. The rest have been buried somewhere in the southern Negev in Israel. No, they're here. It was a fantastic trip. But I'm excited to jump into Genesis 32 this week as we continue our study in the book of Genesis. We are looking really in Genesis, tracing uh, this morning a story within a story, the meta story, the big narrative of Genesis. We are tracing God's redemptive plan. All that sin has wrecked, God made a promise that he would send a deliverer. His name is Jesus Christ, our Messiah, who would come and re, uh, re, uh, uh, both resave all that has been unsaved, be, be restore all that has been broken, and bring about his full and perfect plan through Jesus Christ. That's what we've been waiting on and what we've been tracing in Genesis. The story within the story is how he does that. As we trace a genealogical tree by which this Messiah will come. And we've seen it from Adam and Eve all the way to Noah, and then picked up with the kind of culminating in Abraham, where God makes very specific promises about his line. And then his sons, Isaac, and now Jacob, who we're zeroing in on, zooming in on here in the story. And now, when we jump into chapter 32, it's been 20 years since Jacob fled from his home in Canaan to go back to the home of origin, his uncle's house, Laban. And he's been there the last 20 years. And all during this time, God has been taking this brother to school. 
He has been working him over in such a way to help strip away so much of the pride and the manipulation and the deception that has been the hallmark of Jacob's life since he was born. And now God has called him to return. After 20 years, he is to return to the promised land, the land of Canaan, where God promised him that this land would be his and his descendants that would come, that he would give them great offspring and that he would bless him richly. And as he's coming back, there is now one major threat that stands in the way of Jacob and the promise of God. And it's a threat that you're gonna see mentioned nine times in this passage. And the threat is not a what, it's a who. His name is Esau. Esau, last time we saw Esau, he's the older twin brother of Jacob. And remember back in the earlier chapters, 27, after Jacob had tricked Esau out of his birthright, had stolen his blessing, the last words we heard from Esau in chapter 27 were this, I will kill my brother. It's the last words we have. And Jacob's been gone now 20 years. And now as he comes back, this is the most immediate thing on his mind. Am I walking back into a murder plot? Is my brother going to kill me? Has he stored up wrath and vengeance all these 20 years for me? And as Jacob comes back, he is terrified. The question is, how is Jacob gonna respond? Is he gonna pull the old Jacob and he's gonna respond to this threat with cunning and scheming and deceiving and manipulating? Or is there a new and refined Jacob that's gonna do this through trust in God? And that's the tension we're gonna see in chapter 32. But as he heads back in, he's incredibly afraid, but God meets him in the most wonderful way right here in verses one and two of chapter 32. Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim, which means two camps. Jacob's coming back. He's terrified of what's in front of him. And he sees, these, he sees not only his camp, the earthly camp, Jacob's crew and all his provisions and possessions and people. But then he sees God's camp. He sees this angelic host, these messengers that have been sent to greet him And just as the angels greeted him back at Bethel in chapter 28, when Jacob was departing Canaan for that 20-year journey away, now angels are greeting him right as he enters back into the land. Here, 20 years later, this is meant to be a bookend on that episode. It's great encouragement that God gave him when he was heading out. And now it's great encouragement that God is sending him as he is coming back in. This is God sending his messengers, his divine messengers, angels, ahead to Jacob saying, listen, Jacob, I know you're scared. You don't have just your camp to rely on. My camp is with you. I am here. I am for you. I have not forsaken my promises to you. You don't have to fear Esau. You don't have to try to take matters into your own hands. I've got you. So be encouraged. And so with that great encouragement, look what he does in verse three. Jacob also sent messengers. By the way, same word as angels in verse two. It's just in Hebrew, it just means messengers. Only one set was divine messengers. And now Jacob is going to send his earthly messengers, his servants before him, 
to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, in the country of Edom. And so here, Jacob matches what he just saw. The angels greet him, the messengers greet him, and now he sends his messengers ahead to encourage Esau, just like God's messengers encouraged him. And he tells these messengers, as they go to meet Esau in verse four, he instructs them, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. So in other words, hey, messengers, I want you to go ahead. I want you to tell Esau when you see him, hey, your brother was away for the last 20 years and he's been with your uncle Laban and God has blessed him. He has done well and now he is coming back home and as he comes back home, he is seeking peace, not war. And so in verse six, he gets report back from the messengers. What was Esau's response? They tell him in verse um, verse six, the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you and there are 400 men with him. Now, how would you interpret that? Same way that Jacob interprets it. Oh, this is not a welcome party. This is a war that's happening. This is a militia. In fact, that phrase 400 men, that's idiomatic in the Old Testament for a militia. It's the same thing we saw in 1 Samuel with David's 400 men. This is a militia. Now, I'm gonna spoiler alert here. We're gonna find out in chapter 33 That's not why they were coming. They're not coming to make war with Jacob. Just as God has been working on Jacob in these last 20 years, we're gonna find out God has been working on Esau as well. And these 400 men are not sent to attack Jacob. They're being sent to protect him. But Jacob doesn't know that. All he knows, my brother wants to murder me. It's what I knew 20 years ago. And my first encounter now, he's sending 400 men to come meet me. So what does he do? Verse seven and eight, Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him, the flocks, the herds, the camels into a manahim, two camps. where did he get that idea? He just saw it. So he divides all his possessions into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the other camp that is left will be able to escape. So he's playing his odds. This is old Jacob right here. This is classic Jacob. I'm afraid. I'm going to take things into my own hands. So I'm just going to divide everything in half. And so when Esau comes to this 400 men, he's going to attack one of them and they're all going to die, but the other half can be preserved. So I'm just going to play my odds right here. Classic Jacob. But what he does next is a new Jacob. He's going to pray. And we have not seen Jacob do this in explicit form like we're going to see right here. And I want you to just listen to this prayer, how beautiful it is. In verse nine, Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country, to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan. And now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me and the mothers with the children. But you said, 
I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Now, a couple of things to note. First of all, note, this is the first explicitly recorded prayer of Jacob in Genesis. We've not seen him pray before like this. Secondly, this is the longest recorded prayer in the whole book of Genesis right here. But it's a desperate prayer. It's a righteous prayer. This is not a Jacob we've seen before. And think about what's in this prayer. He, first, he appeals to the covenantal relationship that God made with his grandfather Abraham, his father Isaac, and now has made with him. And he confesses here, and you see the humility now of Jacob coming out. God, you've only always been good to me. I'm not worthy of any of the blessings. You have poured out your favor upon me, even though I've been a deceiver, I've manipulated and tricked my way through life, yet despite me, because of your incredible grace, you have given me what I have not deserved. You have lavished your steadfast love upon me. But God, you called me here. You're the one who told me to come back here and you made a promise that you were gonna do me good by coming back here, not by taking my life. In fact, you said I was gonna have a multitude of descendants. I don't even have any kids yet and I'm not gonna be able to have any if Esau murders me. So God, I need your help. I'm scared, I'm terrified. I need you to show up. It's a beautiful prayer. By the way, it's the same kind of prayer that we can pray. You do not have to be some scholared theologian in order to cry out to your God. You just need a humble disposition that knows who the one is that's sovereign and good that gives you what you don't have. You just need to know that and you need to cry out in dependence and you need to appeal. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you can appeal to the covenantal relationship that he's made with you through the blood of Jesus Christ that has bought you and purchased you. And you can appeal to his promises. You need to know at least enough of your Bible to know that God has made promises towards you. Now, he has not promised that you will not suffer. In fact, if you're in Christ Jesus, it's just the opposite. You're going to suffer. But he has made promises that he will never forsake you. He'll never abandon you. He will walk with you. He will give you everything you need in the midst of the suffering. And he has already secured the final outcome in which you are victorious in Christ Jesus. And so you can appeal to that. You can take your fears to him, your anxieties to him, and you can cast them upon him because you know from God's word that he cares for you. It's a beautiful, beautiful prayer to pray. Now, what I love about Jacob is he doesn't just lean on the old proverbial shovel and pray for a hole here. He does some digging. In fact, Paul wrote to the church at Rome, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. You can't always control what other people are gonna do to you. Jacob is not in control of what Esau is going to do, but you can dictate what you're going to do. And in this moment, Jacob is going to be in his shrewdness that he does have, use it for good, and he's going to find a way to initiate peace towards his brother Esau. You see this in verse 13 to 21. So he stayed there that night and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewe lambs, 20 rams, 30 milking cows and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys. 
And these he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself. And he said to his servants, pass on ahead of me, put space between drove and drove. And he instructed the first servant, when Esau, my brother, meets you, and he asks, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And, uh, and whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant, Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau, and moreover, he is behind us. And then likewise, Jacob instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us, for he thought I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him and he himself stayed that night in the camp. 550 animals are given as an offering to Esau and they come in 10 different droves, wave after wave after wave of an offering. And, you know, we're, we're told in certain ancient accounts We have stories of entire cities that gave gifts like this to a particular king in order to appease that king. And yet, even in those ancient accounts, entire cities did not give as much as we see is given by this one man in this text right here. 550 animals, that was the currency of that day. This is an incredible amount of wealth that is being poured out upon Esau. Now, some might see this and interpret the old Jacob here as going, ah, he's just kissing butts, trying not to get killed, just trying to cover himself, you know, manipulate his way in. But I think the Jacob that has been, been worked on by God for the last 20 years, I think what you're actually seeing here is called repentance and restitution. In other words, I, I stole your birthright, I, I stole your blessing. I have since been greatly blessed more than I could ever possibly deserve. And as I'm coming back, I know I've got to face what I did. And so I want to give back what belongs to you. And I think there's a picture here, y'all, that the same is true for us when it comes to reconciliation in relationships in which we have contributed to wound. In order for reconciliation to take place, there's a few things that need to be in place. One has got to be confession from the offending party. A confession, we would call it an apology, but it's an agreement with God that what I did was sin and an owning up to it. And the way that I demonstrate that that confession is true is through repentance. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change in behavior. It's from going one direction and now going back in the original direction I was supposed to be going. And part of repentance, part of how repentance is manifested in a situation like this is restitution. If I've taken something from you, then I'm gonna make it right. Um, if If I stole $300 from one of you, it does me no good. It does you no good for me just to later on say, hey, by the way, I'm sorry that I did that. No, I'm 300 bucks short. You're, you are. And so like, why don't you give that back? That would be helpful right here. And that is part of making it right. That I'm going to pay back what I took, what I stole. And in this situation, then you've done as much as it depends on you now to be at peace with said person. Now, on the other half, the offended party they have the decision now to forgive, 
to receive that confession and that act of contrition and repentance and restitution. And they can choose to cancel that debt, at least the debt of transgression, the debt of hostility, but maybe even the debt itself that is owed. And not that it has to be in every situation, but a little spoiler alert, it's exactly what Esau is going to do in the next chapter in 33. He's going to say, I don't need any of this. I already forgive you. And so after that, then can come reconciliation where the two that had been fractured can now be brought back together as one and made whole. Interestingly enough, I don't know if you caught this, but in verse 20, I want you to underline the word appease. It's a very significant word. Jacob sent these animals, almost like a sacrifice, in order to appease, literally in Hebrew, it's appease Esau's face to appease the wrath that is on Esau's face. The word for appease though in Hebrew is the word kapur. It means to cover or to atone. And it does so in order to appease one's wrath against the offense that has happened. He sends animals over as that appeasement, there's an incredible foreshadowing taking place right here. Because some 500 years later, after God delivers his people from Egypt, slavery in Egypt, and he brings Moses up on Mount Sinai and he gives him the law and they set in place not only the whole law of God that is the righteous requirements of God in relationship with him, but he sets up the sacrificial system in certain holy days in which they were to remember and they were to bring their gifts in order to appease the wrath of God for their sin. One of those days is the most holy day in all of Israel called Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. And in that day is the only day when the high priest of Israel would enter into the Holy of Holies and would take this sacrificed animal and take its blood and sprinkle its blood seven times on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark of the Covenant was the stone tablets of Moses, amongst other things, that contained the the Ten Commandments, which represented the perfect law of God of which man had broken and offended. Above the Ark of the Covenant is the Shekinah, the glory of God, that also represented the righteous wrath of God upon the law that had been broken, us. But what's on top of that Ark of the Covenant? It's known as the mercy seat. It's the mercy seat. And when that blood was sprinkled on it, that blood would kapoor. It would cover the law of God that had been transgressed and it would appease the wrath of God, thereby canceling out the debt and bringing forgiveness. And even that, 500 years later, was always just another shadow for the one day that Paul said in Romans 3 when God's personal Kapoor would come. His name is Jesus Christ, the final, the Lamb of God, the final sacrifice, who would go on a cross for us, who would shed his blood, and that blood would Kapoor, it would atone, it would cover our sins that had violated and transgressed a holy God. And in doing so, it would appease the just wrath of God, the righteous wrath of God that was on us that should bring about punishment for that sin. But instead now, because of the blood of Christ and our transferring our faith to him, we are given forgiveness. We are cleansed of all our sin and unrighteousness. And the wrath of God is appeased. 
Beautiful picture right here. And Jacob sending these animals over to Esau as a kapoor, as a atonement to appease the wrath that would be culminated in Jesus Christ. Well, after this happens, last thing he does before he awaits this encounter with Esau, verse 22, the same night he arose and he took his two wives, uh, uh, part of four actually, two female servants, his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and he sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. It's the last thing Jacob will do before he anticipates Esau's arrival the next morning. As he sends the rest of his family, the rest of his possessions across the ford, as they go on ahead behind the caravan of gifts, and it's just Jacob, all by himself. And interestingly enough, he's right back where he started. 20 years earlier, when he had left Canaan at Bethel, it was just Jacob alone with a stone pillow. And there he encountered the living God. And now he finds himself all alone again as he's entering back in. So now it sets up one more encounter with the living God. It's a beautiful moment. This is exactly where God wants him with nothing but just Jacob alone and God. And then this interesting scene happens at the end of verse 24. A man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. Now what in the world is going on right here? Rando man shows up in the middle of the night, puts Jacob in a full Nelson and blows out his hip right before dawn breaks. What's going on here? Three questions we need to ask. Who's this man? Why is he wrestling Jacob? Why the hip? First, who's this man? Who do you think Jacob probably thought this is? This is just a guess. It's the middle of the night. You can't really see. You're terrified. You've sent everybody away. You know Esau's coming. And then all of a sudden, some man shows up and wrestles you. And by the way, this isn't just, when you think wrestle here, don't spiritualize this. It's an actual wrestle. The Hebrew word literally means uh, to get dusty by means of twisting. This is an actual wrestle, okay? This is like WWE, but it's real. And so there's a wrestle going on. Who does he probably think this is? At first, anyways, probably thinks it's Esau. Brother's showing up to kill me now. He's got me in a chokehold, pinning me to the ground. Heck, if I'm going down like this, and they're wrestling, and it's on. But we'll see in just a moment, this was not Esau. This was actually no ordinary man. This is God. And to be more specific, this is not just even a theophany of God. This is more likely a Christophany of God. Hosea chapter 12 tells us that this wasn't a mere man. This was the angel of the Lord. This was an angel. It's the angel of the Lord. And as we've talked about in Genesis before, there's a difference between an angel and the angel of the Lord. Every time you see an angel, we're talking about a divine messenger that God has sent, one of the angelic beings sent to do his bidding as a messenger of God. But whenever you see the angel of the Lord, we're getting a glimpse of the pre-incarnate Messiah, Jesus Christ, 
third member of the Trinity, second member of the Trinity who's come. And, and, and we've seen him show up before. Genesis chapter 16, we saw this same angel with Hagar. Genesis 18, we saw this angel with Abraham. Genesis 22, we saw it with Abraham and Isaac. And what's interesting is Micah, when Micah prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, he said this, there shall be one who comes from you whose coming forth is actually from days of old, from ancient days, meaning you've actually seen him before. He's actually been here before. He's all throughout your Old Testament. And now he's shown it's only in the New Testament that he is actually conceived of a virgin and he's born in human flesh, but he's certainly present still in the Old Testament. And so this is Jacob wrestling with God, no, no ordinary man. Why is he wrestling with Jacob? Fact is, Jacob thinks and has thought all along that his greatest strife is with people. It's either with his parents, it's with Esau, it's with Laban, like all his issues. He thinks all his biggest wrestles in life have been with people, but in all reality, it's been God that he's been striving with all along, not just the people. It's God. Then this wrestling match that's taking place right here is simply the culmination of the fight that he has been having with God since the moment he was born. God has now brought Jacob to this place for one reason, and it's to strip him of all his pride and to break him of his self-reliance. That self-reliance that has manifested itself all these years through cunning and scheming and manipulation and deception. And now, it's interesting, the way this reads in the English almost makes it sound like Jacob was so strong that this man couldn't prevail against him. Um, and that's why it just took all night. Now, first of all, let's be reminded, Jacob is an old man right now. He's not incredibly strong and it's usually not a good idea to wrestle with senior citizens, but God thought it was okay in this moment. But it's actually quite the opposite. It's clearly, we see in this passage, all the angel of the Lord had to do is use one finger to touch his hip and blow it out. So it's not that this is an incompetent angel of the Lord going on here, wrestling with Jacob or, or certainly not a strong one. No, he could do it in a moment. So the question is, why didn't she just do that right out of the gate? Why didn't God just show up and the second he saw him, just touch his hip and blow him out right there? Why make him strive all night long? And I think the answer that we're intended to see is that God isn't allowing the struggle for God's sake. God is allowing the struggle for Jacob's sake. God's goal in sanctification and growing us in our maturity in Christ, God's goal is not to win, it's to form. It is to form us. And that formation takes time. We do not become these perfectly imaged, uh, imaging Jesus Christ saints overnight. This is a lifetime. It'll never end. And it's painful along the way. And so in this moment, God gives Jacob all night to try and squeeze the sin of self-sufficiency and self-reliance out of Jacob until the final moment, which is right before dawn breaks. Why only then? Well, one is that's when Esau's about to make his appearance. You're gonna see this in chapter 33, right after dawn breaks, Esau shows up. So it's time to end this fight right now. 
And so very quickly, very decisively strikes the final blow to his hip. Why the hip? Well, short answer, break a man's wrist, he can fight with his other one. Uh, Roll a man's ankle, he can still fight with the other leg. Black in his eye, he's got another one. But you lose your hip and it's over. It's the reason why there's always so much concern over the elderly falling and breaking a, a hip. The strength of a man or a woman is in their back and in their legs, which are controlled by the hips. God is going for Jacob's strength. There's no question here. I want you to think about it. Jacob's whole life has been marked, again, by deceit and manipulation and self-reliance. He has learned that when he is in a pinch, he just needs to lean on his own strength, his own ingenuity, his own craftiness in order to get himself out of a jam. He has not needed God. So now what's he have? Now that his hip's blown out, he's got nothing. All his strength has been stripped away. He's got nothing but the weakness of a limp to present himself in just a moment to what he feels is his greatest threat, Esau. And he's got nothing but God. Here's the point of this text, I think, in many ways. A.W. Tozer once said, God is, often cannot use a man until he's been hurt deeply. It's only then that we're in the position of humility to depend upon God's strength and not our own. I've said it before, some of the, some of the godliest, deepest Those faithful Christians I know are not the ones who are perfect and have it all together. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's the ones who have been through some of the hardest trials, who've been broken the worst. And they met God in the midst of it. And they found out where their true strength was. See, I mean, many of you have got that same story in this room. You know what it's like. Some of you know what it's like where your God was your wallet, your finances, prized yourself in it. And then one day, whether it was in COVID, job loss, whatever, stripped away. And you didn't have it anymore to fall back on. Some of you in here, your God, you would confess, was your body. It was your image, it was your looks. And then maybe in some form or fashion, that was taken away. And you didn't have it anymore to depend on. For some of us in this room, Your God is your abilities, your skill sets. You're a savant. You're just sharper than everybody else. But then one day, some accident, some trial, or it's not even, it's dried up and irrelevant all of a sudden. That's no longer your strength anymore. For some of us, you know, your God is your comfort and you had it all stripped away. You know, you know what it's like to have your greatest strength suddenly become your weakness. Sometimes we realize our cognitive knowledge about God, it's just not enough to change us. We know what is true about God, but we're not yet depending upon God. We know all about the attributes of God, but we're we're not utilizing God for any of them. We're far too prone to lean on our own strengths. We, we walk around as functional atheists. We believe in God, but we don't need him for anything because we're too busy leaning on ourselves for what only God can do. And therefore, we never know how to depend on him. We never know how to, how to really know him and need him. This is Jacob and God has to break him. And did you note at the end of verse 26, after, it's only after his strength was taken out, 
He's no longer fighting God anymore. He's clinging to him. He will not turn loose of him now. Only after his strength has been taken away until God will bless him. And that's the kind of dependence that God's looking for. Not the one who's all bowed up and has got all the strength and follow me, you know, because I'm so awesome. No, the one who is clinging at the feet of our savior because we know we are impotent of anything that is good and that is gonna come our way. Only God can provide. And notice the blessing that he demands in verse 27, the blessing that he receives is not in the form of wealth and prosperity or abundance anymore. The blessing he receives in verse 27 is in the form of a new identity. You see this. He said to him, what is your name? The man says to Jacob, what is your name? And he said, Jacob, Yaakov. Now that's interesting. If this is God, then he already knows his name. Why is he asking him what his name is? Well, it's the same thing as God did with Adam in Genesis 3 when Adam was hiding. Adam, where are you? It's not that God didn't know where he is. He's not asking the question for God's sake. He's asking the question for Adam's sake. And in this moment, it's not that God needs to hear the name Jacob. Jacob needs to hear the name Jacob. What is your name? My name is Yaakov, deceiver. That's what it means. Supplanter, heel grabber, manipulator, schemer, liar. He needs to hear himself say it. That has been your identity since the moment you left your mother's womb. Always one who resorts to his own strength and cunning in order to get out of your jams, but no more. No, in verse 28, then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Yisrael. Yisrael. Yisrael means one who fights, one who contends, one who strives. El, Elohim, God. Your name shall be Israel, one who strives with God. Your name shall be Israel, for you have striven with God and with men, and you have prevailed. And this is a good thing. From now on, this is your identity. You'll no longer, even though we'll still use the name Jacob here and there, that's not your identity. From now on, your identity is Israel, one who strives with God and wins. And that's not only going to mark you for the rest of your life, it's going to mark all those who come after you, starting with your 12 sons that are the 12 tribes, and eventually the entire description of the nation of Israel is Israel. I just got back from there. When I flew over there, I didn't fly to Jacob, flew to Israel. It is meant to be a line of demarcation for God's people that your strength is not found in you, it's found in God. Your merit is not what earns you God's deliverance and God's salvation. It is his undeserving grace and mercy that has been poured out on you. And so this is a good thing. Jacob, you wrestled with God and you won. Why'd you win? Was it because of your strength? No, your hip's blown out. Was it because of your cunning and your scheming? No, you didn't deserve any of this. You didn't earn any of this. This was given to you freely by God. And because in your wrestling with God, you came to the end of yourself and you found out that when you're weak, he's strong. And you clung to him. From this point forward, every step that you take is gonna be with a limp and it'll be a reminder of where your strength truly lies. When you present yourself to Esau in just a few moments, you're going to lead out of weakness, not strength. Because that is where I'm going to be found. 
Paul said the same thing to the church in Corinth and he said the same thing concerning us. Second Corinthians chapter 12, when Paul had been afflicted with some sort of eye ailment, it appears to be after he got a glimpse of heaven, he wrote these words. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that I saw, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. Why? To keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Why? Because my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. Why? Because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. God is, he just has a way of taking the very things that we feel are most impressive about us and turning them into weaknesses and then using those weaknesses to magnify his strength. This is one of the chief hallmarks of a Christian, by the way, compared to the rest of the world. Everything that's in our media, social media, movies, television shows are all projecting strength, beauty, confidence, be your best self. That's what they're all projecting. What makes us different than the rest of the world? We don't walk with a swagger. As Christians, we walk with a limp. We, you know, we somehow fall in the trap of believing that setting aside our weaknesses and trying to replace them with strengths is the evidence that God is at work in our lives when in fact it's actually the exact opposite. You coming face to face with your weaknesses and embracing them and surrendering them to Christ and letting him work through those weaknesses, not to magnify you, but to magnify his glory, that's the evidence that God is working in you, in your life. The more you mature in Christ, the more you embrace those weaknesses and surrender them to Jesus. And that is why Jesus, by the way, is such the perfect example for us. Rather than having to be, rather than being stripped of his weaknesses, he didn't have any. Rather than being stripped, I'm sorry, of his pride and all that, he didn't have any of that. He willingly lays down his own strengths though and takes on weaknesses for us. Paul said in Philippians 2, Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing that to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus being the ultimate example of what it means to embrace weakness in order to magnify the strength of God so that others can benefit from that, Paul begins that passage in Philippians by saying, have this mind among yourselves. This is how you need to think. This is how we need to think. We are to be a people who bring all of our mess to God, wrestle with him in faith, get broken and humbled by his grace and come out clinging to him for the blessing that he freely gives, not the one that we earn by our own merits. So all that's to say, it's no wonder why Jacob and all of God's people were meant to be marked as Israelites by this moment in Genesis 32. For it's in my weakness that I'll understand and embrace God's strength. By the way, Jacob gets his name here just to close out this text. He asks a question in verse 29. Jacob asks, um, please tell me your name. But the angel of the Lord said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. No answer. Not gonna give you my name. You know why? Because you already know it. And Jacob says in verse 30, you're absolutely right. I do know who I wrestled with. Because in verse 30, Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. 
saying, for I have seen God face to face and yet my life has been delivered. Now, I don't have time for it here, but you just need to know in this entire passage, the Hebrew word for face appears seven times. But the idea is this, Jacob, who in verse 20 is trying so hard in his flesh to appease the face of Esau as he was facing certain death there, he ends up encountering the face of God. He should have died in that moment, but he came out more alive than he's ever been. So he names this place, not Bethel, the house of God from his last encounter. He names this place Penuel, face of God where he met God face to face. And then finally, in the last two verses, we see Mosaic's, uh, uh, Moses's mosaic footnote here that he inserts for the original readers who are reading this so they can make a connection. When the sun rose upon him, he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, Moses tells him this, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew, the ligament of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. In other words, this is such a sacred moment for God's people. They're named after this moment. It's such a sacred moment that Moses inserts this commentary to let the original audience know that's the reason why under the Mosaic law, Levitical law, even to this day, 500 years later, we don't eat the ligament around the thigh on the animals. That's not kosher. And the reason is, is because that place was marked off by God to give us our new identity, that our strength is not found in ourselves. It is found in God who is our deliverer. That's what it's supposed to mean. This is no doubt a powerful moment for Jacob. It's a powerful moment for all the Israelites, but it's a powerful moment for us. This text is a reminder that when it comes to God fulfilling his ultimate purposes of redemption and blessing in our lives, he does not need our effort or our cunning or our impressive talent in order to bring it about. No, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to bring you salvation because he knew you and I couldn't do it for ourselves. He saved us by grace. Christ came freely. He died on that cross as the kapoor for us, as the atonement. He shed his blood so that we could be forgiven. The wrath of God could be appeased and we can be reconciled to God. We have been saved by grace. But understand, you're not saved by grace and then you're formed by merit. You're saved by grace and you're sustained by grace. Every day, it is receiving God's mercy in your life, God's grace in your life, and growing out of it. Our deeds that we do, you don't come to church in order to get God's salvation. You don't, you don't reduce your cussing vocabulary in order to make you more right with God. You don't try to improve your morality so that God will find favor in you and then pick you to be on his team. No, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, unconditionally that you by grace might receive the free gift of salvation. Put your trust in him. And then out of that grace, now everything that we do is a, not a have to, it's a get to as an act of worship unto our God that he brought all this our way. Oh, that we would never forget this. I don't know where you find yourself striving today. I don't know what threats are being faced in your life. I don't know what challenges you're walking through right now, but I do know this, God's grace is sufficient for you in them. You don't have to strive alone. You can take those strivings to the Lord. You can lay them at his feet. You can cling to his promises that he loves you, that he 
that he will work out good in the end, even if you cannot see it now. And he has promised you that ultimate security in Jesus Christ. And you can cling to him and hope in the midst of that pain, knowing he's not gonna waste your pain. He's gonna use it to form you more and more to the image of Jesus if we'll only cling to him rather than ourselves. Amen? Now let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for the great reminder that Lord, our standing with you, even our own blessing that you've promised in Jesus Christ, it does not come through our own merit. It is given freely through Jesus Christ. God, would you help us to see that? Would you wean us like Jacob of old here? Would you wean us away from pride and self-sufficiency and self-reliance that the rest of the world is just pushing down our throats is what the answer to all that ails us is. Oh, no, Lord, may we turn to you. God, may it not have to even be a hit being blown out to get us there, though we'll ask it if that's the only way, but may we in our own self-initiative, just as Jesus did, empty ourselves, bend the knee and just surrender our lives unto you, knowing that you are good, you care for us. And Lord, by your grace, would you transform us? I pray this, Lord, for for the glory of your name. In Jesus Christ, we pray, amen, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.